0: and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Brian Jenkins about his biography of the 19th century British diplomat Lord Lyons entitled, Lord Lyons, A Diplomat in an Age of Nationalism and War. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling the listeners something about yourself. I'm sure that most
1: of them will not appreciate the fact that I've done nothing in my life except be an academic, Mark. Um, And taught at um, uh, two universities in Canada, um, University of Saskatchewan, and uh, Bishop's University, which is a uh, Anglophone uh, small university of about 2,700 students in the province of Quebec, and uh, have been retired for 18 years.
0: You've written a variety of books in uh, British history uh, dealing with foreign policy. What led you to write a biography of Lord Lyons in particular specifically?
1: Well, uh, when I was an undergraduate uh, in an honours program in uh, in Britain, um, a requirement was that uh, you write an honours thesis. And um, I chose as my honours thesis because I was then specializing in U.S. history. Uh, the uh, Mason and Slidell or the Trent Affair in 1861 which uh, created uh, a climate of uh, tension between Britain and the United States uh, during the Civil War, of course. And uh, there were occasional um, beliefs that it might actually lead to war between Great Britain uh, and the United States. And that opened to me um, Lord Lyons, because at that time, the only uh, significant work on Lord Lyons was... um, a two-volume biography uh, by Lord Newton, who had served under him at the uh, British Embassy in Paris, uh, but was a book which concentrated almost exclusively uh, on his Paris years, uh, 20 years of them, uh, when he was an important figure, but probably uh, his most important period was that uh, just prior to his appointment to Paris. not Constantinople, which he was only there for a year, but um, before that in the United States of America during the Civil War.
0: To get to that point in his career, you, you, you chart a very interesting arc. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about uh, Lord Lyons's, uh family and what his upbringing was like.
1: Um, his family made their fortune uh, – distantly in sugar planting in Antigua in the West Indies, um, a slave plantation, uh, which was not uh, by the 19th century very reputable. Um, His father's family was very large. His father was the fourth son, I think, of perhaps 13 uh, children uh, in that branch of the Lyons family and was put into the Navy and um, uh, did fairly well. Uh, He was a successful uh, uh, naval man, Uh, he rose through the ranks well from midshipman up uh, to captain um, and um, distinguished himself. But of course at the end of the uh, Napoleonic Wars uh, like many sailors he was eventually put on to half pay. So one of the themes for the Lyons family is that they are chronically at least by their own estimation, uh, short of money. Uh, And concern about finances uh, is an enduring feature of uh, less his father's life, but particularly that of Lord Lyons himself. Uh, Throughout his life, he was concerned uh, that he would have enough uh, cash uh, to live comfortably. And he was always fretting, once he entered the diplomatic service, about the size of his pension. And indeed, he stayed on in the United States uh, longer than he ought to have done because of his ill health, so that he he served his five years as a minister plenipotentiary uh, in Washington, D.C., in order to guarantee his pension. Um, His father, um, when on half pay, behaved much like uh, one of Jane Austen's characters, Captain Harville, that is, they found um, a house, a comfortable house, Inexpensive house by the sea, but um, it was um, a harder experience than um, any of them wished to endure for long. Eventually, his father got back into the Navy uh, when one of his own brothers, who had continued to serve as a lieutenant, was killed and uh, re entered the naval service and again became very successful. Uh, Lyons himself uh, was taught at home for a long time, but worried that this would not be the best education for himself. Uh, But his father took him and uh, his uh, younger brother on one of his tours of duty, um, which ended up at Constantinople. Um, And there Lyons, uh, that is, uh, Lord Lyons, the younger one, um, was exposed to the diplomatic service. Uh, His father had ferried Sir Robert Gordon, who was the British ambassador to the port to uh, the Ottoman Empire, uh, to Constantinople, and their lions began to mix uh, with the aristocrats um, who dominated in the British diplomatic service at that time. Uh, He still worried about his education, uh, that he wasn't really getting the kind of education which would see him prosper um, as an academic figure or um, as a man of some academic distinction and so eventually his parents put him into um, an English public school, uh, Winchester College, where uh, he achieved some success Um, and from there he moved on to Oxford Um, and it was at this point that he became the victim of parental pressure. His uh, parents thought that he was outstanding and so believed that he needed to get a first class degree in order to prove just how outstanding he was. And this placed him under the kind of pressure that um, he was at least at that time ill-equipped to uh, shoulder manfully and he had a dismal academic career. And when he left, um, he made a promise to himself that he would never, ever disappoint his parents again. And to his credit, he implied by that promise that he'd made.
0: So he leaves university, and he then goes into the diplomatic service. Was it uh, uh, difficult for him to get in the service given his uh, academic performance, or? Uh...
1: Well, his father um, had eventually got a diplomatic posting himself. Uh, his reports back to London as a naval officer about conditions in the Aegean was such that uh, he impressed the foreign office and he was a, a appointed the British minister to uh, to Greece um, into which state the British had imported a European prince offer uh, as king. And as a sitting minister, um, a minor diplomatic position at the time, um, Lyons, Um, got for his son, uh, our Lord Lyons, uh, the position of an unpaid attaché. This was not unusual, um, but it was a helping hand. Uh, His father asked for this as a kind of reward for his services in Athens.
0: Yeah, it was, the the parallel I was thinking of as I was reading that portion, it's sort of uh, akin to the unpaid internships that you see today, and it, and it really did seem to give him that that beginning of a grounding. And, and as you describe, he really did apply himself uh, not just to the 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 job of being an attaché, but also to studying Greek and to really uh, trying to understand the culture.
1: Uh, that's true. Um, his relationship with his father was. Um, close enough, but his relationship with his mother was quite intense, and from his mother as um, a child, uh, he was instructed uh, uh, never to be um, um, inconvenienced by difficulties, never to allow difficulties to obstruct his advancement, that uh, he was told by his mother to um, cultivate the habit of constant employment. And of course, his mother was present uh, in Athens along with his father for much of the time. And so she was there as a constant encouragement. He didn't need a great deal, but he certainly did seek to expand his knowledge of Greece. And his acquisition of modern Greek as opposed to the more historic versions of the language um, made him eventually a significant... um, um, Advisor for his father in terms of Greek politics.
0: How many years did he spend in Greece and where was he posted after that?
1: Um, well, he spent a great deal of time. It was, um, now you're putting me on the spot, but I think, (laughs) I think, um, he was there until the 1840s. Um, and he was anxious eventually to get out because his father, uh, was removed, um, Uh, The Foreign Office eventually decided that his father was uh, not performing as well as they thought he ought and so moved him to a complete diplomatic backwater, which was, of course, Switzerland. His father became the minister to Bern. No one else wanted to go there, so his father uh, got that post. But then they moved him on to Sweden, which was a slightly more important uh, posting. But his father was replaced by um, an Irish... uh, nationalist, but also a unionist, Thomas Wise. And he really abhorred, uh, that is Lyons, the way that uh, Thomas Wise uh, ran uh, the legation in Athens. He thought that he was uh, uh, lazy, uh, that he didn't pay enough attention to uh, important matters, and that um, he ran the legation on the cheap. I think one of the most astonishing things for Lyons was that he bought Van Ordinaire and tried to stick uh, uh, Premier Cruz labels on it to influence persons who were entertained. And Lyons made up his mind at that point that if he ever advanced in the profession, uh, nothing like that would ever happen in the legation that he led. He was just anxious
0: to get out. And eventually he did. He got to Dresden in Germany. Uh, What you described there gets to one of the recurrent uh, aspects of this book that I thought was very interesting, which is we think of diplomats as civil servants, and yet what you describe throughout so much of the book is the very real overlapping between the career uh, civil servant and politics, which is constantly intersecting with Lyons' life, not just later in his career, but early on. He's uh, dealing with some very important political matters. And that's what, to me, made Ly- Lyons' life so fascinating was, you, as you describe, these diplomats, you know, before the era of instant communication, had considerable autonomy to uh, shape uh, uh, a policy and to uh, influence events.
1: Uh, Lyons himself uh, would deny that he ever attempted to shape British policy. Um, Lyons believed that his job as a diplomat was to provide the Foreign Office with the information about the existing regime, about um, uh, the degree to which that regime was supported by the larger public, uh, to provide them with all the information they needed in order to shape policy. Policy should be shaped in London. Um, he himself uh, believed it was then his duty uh, to apply that policy as effectively as he could uh, in the particular nation uh, where he was the British representative.
0: And as you describe, that uh, ends up becoming almost, makes him a model of a diplomat for subsequent generations that that he is regarded by his peers at the end of his life as, as you quote in an obituary is the ideal diplomatist for that reason uh,
1: yes um, I mean, there is a theory about the so-called lion's school of British diplomacy um, most of those who support it have tended to be somewhat condescending towards it um, but um, it was a product of a lack of imagination, inventiveness. Um, it was a form of bureaucratic diplomacy, uh, which, of course, is untrue in Lyons' case, um, even though they've attached his name to this perceived school. Uh, there is that theory uh, uh, that uh, Charles Sumner was one in the United States and Austin uh, Layard. Um, The British politician, termed uh, ineffectual diplomat, uh, labelled on lions, which was that uh, he just enforced instructions he received uh, over the telegraph wire, which, of course, quickly spread across uh, Europe uh, in the mid-19th century. That was, of course, uh, untrue
0: describe his time in dresden is as, as fairly short and he goes he then is, is posted to rome and at the time rome is not the capital of italy it's the capital of the papal states and it, it's it's a very interesting period because as you describe it's it's not just about uh british policy towards uh the papal states but there's also this you you talk about how uh Ireland is a factor and British politics is, is, is in the background here in, ter- that, in terms of what Lyons has to deal with in his position.
1: Actually, Dresden, in, just in passing, was important because it was at Dresden that he met Henri Mercier, who was the uh, French minister there, who, of course, reappears in Washington, D.C. during uh, the Civil War, and he became a great instrument of Lyons' policy. Um, or his attitudes, um, his effectiveness is a better word, in dealing with the the Union uh, during the American Civil War. So Dresden was important in that sense, that it connected him with Mercier, who played an important role uh, later in his life. He got to Rome, of course, because of luck. Um, uh, Lyons' career, appropriate because, of course, he wasn't part of the... Aristocratic um, group who dominated uh, uh, British diplomacy. He got there because of his younger sister's marriage uh, into the Norfolk family. Um, although her father described uh, Minna Lyons as not being particularly pretty, she proved to be disastrously attractive, well, sorry, not disastrously, uh, compellingly attractive for. Uh, Lord Arundel, who became the 14th Duke of Norfolk. Now, they were the great English uh, Catholic family, and much to her parents' chagrin, uh, Minna Lyons uh, did indeed become Catholic. And of course, at the very end of his life, um, uh, Lyons himself did convert to Catholicism as well. But it was that um, influence which secured for Lyons the job of the unofficial British representative in Rome. There could be no official representative because the British Parliament required that the papal representative in London was not uh, a papal uh, nuncio, was not a Catholic clergyman. Uh, The Pope replied, well, if that's the case, then the only person you can send as an official representative to Rome will be
0: a Catholic bishop. A British, A Which, of course, at that time, with a lot of tensions uh, between politics and religion regarding such places as Ireland, was not something that a predominantly Protestant parliament was going to accept. No, no.
1: Um, and, uh, I mean, it proved that Pius the Knife did have a sense of humor, uh, as well as ultimately becoming at least infallible in matters of doctrine. Of, of,
0: it, it, it seems that Lyons is in is at this point in his career is enjoying a, a steady rise and uh by the uh by the mid 1850s he he is looking outward to other appointments and as, as you've already mentioned he, he's appointed uh minister to the United States in 1858 and, and that's something that uh today would be regarded as a prestigious posting but as you describe at the uh in the 1850s was not uh was was not so much for uh, in the minds of uh, British diplomats who were posted there.
1: No, and that actually was a second piece of good fortune. Um, his predecessor in Washington was Lord Napier, who was very successful. Um, uh, he had a very successful wife who appealed uh, to Americans, uh, but the conservative government in Britain decided that he had, in their words, been Yankee-bitten Uh, And that was that he was altogether too sympathetic to the notion of American U.S. domination of the Western Hemisphere and the contraction there of British influence. So they decided to remove him. And the man they chose to replace him was Alexander Buchanan, who had been in Washington earlier in his career as a junior diplomat, but absolutely refused to go back because he regarded it as sort of uh, the end of the world to be posted to Washington, D.C. in 1858, 1859. And so Lyons, uh, having done well in Rome and having successfully negotiated uh, the solution of a crisis with uh, Naples over two British engineers uh, who were held captive, having been found on a ship which was believed to be ferrying uh, nationalist uh, equipment uh, to the southern part of Italy in order to raise a rebellion against the the monarch there, King Bomba, Um, he seemed to be the best man under the circumstances, so he was dispatched to Washington. And he had no objection, of course, because it was emerging even then as a very important position, but of course its importance
0: grew dramatically within a few years. Yes, as you describe, uh, he... Takes up the post at a time when you're seeing this, uh, in, as 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 it's been referred to as the, the this impending crisis of secession, the politics of it, and and so in, in 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 many ways he has to hit the ground running. He has to come in and deal with this crisis. And you describe how the the staff at the embassy is so small. So he's representing the British Empire at this time of crisis. And it's him and just a handful of other officials.
1: Well, yes, and they had to work very hard. Uh, One of Lyons' attractions to the Foreign Office, very early in his career, way back when he was his father's um, um, principal advisor in Athens, was his handwriting. Uh, Palmerston, uh, for much of the time, Foreign Secretary before he became Prime Minister, uh, would appear at the Foreign Office in the evenings with uh, uh, Paul lamplights, and uh, good handwriting was very valuable. His father's handwriting was atrocious, and um, having looked at it <laughs> amongst the the um, Lyons archives, um, one is one welcomes the release of arriving at his son's handwriting, which was bold and easily deciphered, and that helped. And Lyons. Um, had to write a great deal himself so you see throughout the years in the united states he's always always seeking help from london in terms of additional staff and he wants to keep them away from willard's where they go for drinks uh, and keep them at their desks so that he doesn't have to write quite as much uh,
0: as he was writing. and he's dealing with uh the, this uh you know rapidly expanding uh plate of problems uh, in ter- as the secession crisis develops. How did he perceive the crisis early on and, 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 and what did he think? W- w- did the Civil War uh, come as a surprise to him or did he uh, early on anticipate that uh, secession was a very real possibility?
1: Um, it's difficult to be absolutely sure uh, in, in, in terms of answering that clearly, um, Lyons was worried that a civil war would break out. Um, and he was worried in particular uh, because of the suffering uh, that would ensue. And he thought always that the North would win, um, if, or the Union would win, sorry, uh, it being um, wealthier, more populous, um, more of the means at its disposal of victory, Uh, but he thought it was likely to be a pyrrhic victory, and that would make very difficult uh, the reunification uh, of the United States. He was always, however, pro-union. Now, he thought that perhaps um, Lincoln made a mistake in sending the relief squadron to Fort Sumter uh, in April of 1861. Uh, he was made, perhaps influenced by uh, William Henry Seward, who was opposed to that policy uh, himself. And he thought that was likely to uh, excite the South into actually going to war. Um, whether or not it's fair to criticise the President for doing what he did, uh, it's very difficult to say because the Lions Seward attitude that you could sort of spread this out um and uh, postpone collision and eventually uh, they would make up and become uh, brothers again i think is a very dubious proposition
0: when the crisis uh you know unfolds into civil war you have this very interesting situation where you have lions in washington dc and as you describe he is uh he is has subordinates in New Orleans, Mobile, uh, yes, Robert Branch in Charleston, and he is in a sense almost managing foreign relations with uh, two pers- two countries in, in in some ways rather than just one. And you describe how he's having to walk that line, and he's doing so at a time when, as you also illustrate, there is a lot of pro. Southern sentiment, pro secession sentiment in uh, England, and a lot of discussion as to uh, you know, possibly supporting the secessionist cause. How did uh, Lyons navigate that, uh, especially in, in, in the first months when uh, the prospects for secession were at their strongest?
1: One of Lyons' innovation, which was innovations, which was um, uh, very sensible, was that. Britain had a large number of consuls in the southern states and what Lyons did, which no one had done before him, was to bring those into a kind of intelligence service. Uh, That is, he required them to send reports to him. They had to send reports to uh, London as well, but they were required to send to him more detailed reports about the situation in their particular area um then they sent to uh, it was lord uh, it was earl russell uh, who was the foreign secretary at this time um so he ensured that his dispatches were based on the best possible information uh, about the situation in the south what was likely to happen in the south um the degree of support for the confederacy uh, or the degree of uh, sympathy for the Union in the southern states, and this was a very sensible, as I said earlier, and uh, intelligent use of this particular resource. Now, Bunch in Charleston and uh, Archibald in New York were the exceptions uh, because all the other consuls were allowed to trade um, for themselves as well as look after British commercial interests. Wherever they were stationed, uh, Mobile or Savannah, or places like that. Uh, but that uh, trading uh, did give them insights into local attitudes, which they then reported to Lyons. The other two were exceptions because they were not permitted to trade, um, Charleston being a major export uh, port for cotton, and New York being the center of the American industrial and financial interests, they were excluded. Those consuls were not permitted to trade, but they did become um, very important sources of intelligence, again, uh, for Lyons. Um, they were freer to uh, move in the communities, uh, detect what was happening and report back uh, to Lyons. Eventually it cost job because the union got fed up with him and um, really constructed a case against him, which was probably uh, phony, uh, in order to uh, announce that he was no longer acceptable, because his ex- his uh, responsibility as a consul was um, given to him by the Union government, not the Confederacy.
0: How did he navigate uh, the? initial crises of, of foreign policy. In particular, you, you've already mentioned the, the, the Mason-Svidal, the, the, the Trent uh, incident. I, I was wondering if you could uh, talk about the insight that sheds into how he sought to manage uh, British relations with the United States during this period where it seemed at various points, very likely, that war uh, might uh, the war might drag in uh, Great Britain as well. Well, uh, one of the problems was, of course, uh, William Henry Seward, Um, Seward
1: was much given uh, to threatening other nations. Uh, Clearly, Seward believed that um, uh, he could dissuade other nations from intervening in any way, probably diplomatically by recognizing the Confederacy, for example, by threatening dire consequences. And Lyons had to handle that. Um, He did his best to make... um, Uh, friends with Seward and ultimately they did become very friendly Uh, but he had to look around for um, alternatives Uh, and of course he decided that the best way of handling Seward was to identify himself closely with the French um, minister uh, to the United States Um, and in this way to present Seward with the Liability that were he to provoke uh, the Europeans, that um, he would face not just Britain, but also France if uh, push came to shove.
0: But that was, uh, sorry, but I was, I was going to say that that was a bit of a double edged sword because you had Mercier, and he's representing uh, France and, and, and the French leader, Napoleon III. He seems to be perfectly willing to enter the war on the side of the Confederacy.
1: That created another problem. Initially, I have to say, Louis-Napoleon was quite happy for um, the British to take the lead in this and was um, um, inclined to say, me too, in the event that um, the British suggested a particular policy. Uh, Now, when the British uh, detected that Napoleon III was talking about the possibility of intervention in the war, Um, The British were inclined to look upon this as a trap. Um, Napoleon's interest, of course, until he got involved in the Mexican disaster, uh, his main interest uh, was in Europe. The British were convinced that um, he wanted to redraw the boundaries of European states which had been drawn in 1815 at the Congress of Vienna at the end of the first an imperial uh, regime, that of his uh, uncle, uh, Napoleon the um, And so they thought that what Napoleon the was anxious to do was to say to them, well, let's intervene, uh, stir up trouble uh, with the United States, and then simply refuse to support the British. That ultimately became the restri- one of the restraining factors on British policy and also, of course, therefore on lands
0: suspicion of Louis Napoleon. And and that's what makes those chapters in your book so fascinating, is is how he has all of these challenges. It's not simply a matter of uh, of of filing notes when when the rights of British citizens are are are, uh, are being violated, he has to navigate a lot of competing interests, many of which threaten a war that uh, not not just in terms of the Trent incident, but as you describe in in a later chapter, there's this there's this concern about Canada, uh, the, the the degree to which Canada is being used as a base for cons- Confederate sympathizers, the worry that the United States might, if they lose the Civil War. Uh, decide to compensate themselves by taking Canada. And and this is really such a a sensitive position. And as you describe it, he uh, manages it so masterfully.
1: Well, uh, Lyons, in a sense, was willing to engage in what might be thought Palmerstonian diplomacy in this situation. Um, Although his main commitment throughout his career was peace, Uh, peace um, uh, between Great Britain and the United States, certainly, and later in Europe to try and establish a peaceful settlement of the Franco-Prussian War, Um, he believed that it was necessary uh, that there should be a stick, at least in the background. And so Lyons advocated and the British government accepted the strengthening of the uh, North American-British naval squadron, and it was Lyons who urged the sending of additional thousands of British troops. Not a huge army compared to the armies slogging it out in the United States, but um, Lyons urged uh, the sending of thousands of troops to Canada, Uh, and of course uh, with the troops came military supplies um, which were designed to uh, arm a Canadian. Canadian militia, uh, so that Canada appeared prepared to resist any kind of um, American assault in the event that there was a war with Britain or that the Confederacy succeeded in leaving um, or disrupting the United States and envious Northerners decided to move north as opposed to recovering the south.
0: Given... The tensions that you describe, the challenges he faced—it's—I it, 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 I was reading the ch- uh, passages where you describe his recurrent illnesses that he's suffering during this period, with with considerable sympathy. The the strain that he must have been under was great, and yet he uh, is—he remains as minister for nearly the entire duration of the war.
1: He ill health had persecuted him. Um, I don't know if you remember, I mean, whilst he was in Athens, uh, he was worried that his career would be blighted by the fact that he had to keep on taking periods off because of his eyes. He seems to have developed uh, tiny, tiny uh, pimples uh, in his eyelids, which made reading dispatches, writing dispatches, very, very difficult. And so he served long terms abroad. Then, of course, his brother had a nervous breakdown, and he was sent to Britain to care for him as well, and then during the American Civil War, it was mainly uh, tension, um, psychological tension uh, which uh, persecuted him and wearied him, Um, but he just carried on. I mean, what else could he do? There was nowhere else for him to go. He did go to Canada twice to try and relax um, uh, and take it easy for a while, but the psychological tension eventually, of course, got to him, and that's why he left in December of 1864.
0: He leaves, and he, but he doesn't retire. So where does he go after his appointment as minister?
1: He goes back to Britain. Um, within two months, the British government has decided that they can't afford to leave the uh, office of minister in the United States open because it's clear that the um, Civil war is coming to an end, and they have another problem, which becomes an even graver one uh, a few years later, which is that uh, they know that many Americans blamed the British for the fact that the war continued so long that it was British uh, blockade runners which kept on supplying the Confederacy with the means to continue fighting the war. Uh, so the British, in February of 1865, um, sent a new minister out, Um, And Lyons was um, retired from the post of minister plenipotentiary uh, to the United States. Now, he was always extremely ambitious. Uh, He wanted promotion. Uh, And he had, I think, whilst he was still in the United States, heard that there was talk uh, that he might get the uh, post of um, ambassador to uh, the Ottoman Empire. And although he was offered Portugal um, by the foreign office, he thought that was too minor a position and was, um, although it was ambassadorial, uh, that it was even less significant than the post in the United States. He wanted uh, um, a position which had some color to it, and the Ottoman Empire appeared to provide that, at least for the interim. So he was rewarded for what he'd done in the United States by being elevated to the ambassadorial level. And once he got there, there was only one post which was higher than that, which was across the British uh, Embassy
0: in Paris. How did he become the ambassador to France? And, and why is that position so at that time so significant?
1: Well, it was significant because, well, it had always been significant. Uh, Through Paris, or through the embassy in Paris, many of the British um, um, ministers and ambassadors at other countries channeled their uh, reports back to London, and the minister there had an opportunity um, to glance through them and get some sense um, of what was happening elsewhere in Europe uh, before that news, in fact, uh, reached London itself. Secondly, of course, um, it had always been the center of European diplomacy, and Louis-Napoleon had maintained the fiction, um, uh, once the Second Empire was formed, that he was the dominant figure uh, on the continent, so there was no need to change the locus of uh, British um, diplomatic interests from Paris. It was the most important. Uh, position, therefore, in 1867, 1868, when Lyons acquired it, uh, still within the British diplomatic service.
0: And yet, as you describe, when he takes over the position, he is uh, an ambassador uh, to a country that is experiencing this almost existential anxiety that their period of supremacy is coming to an end.
1: Yeah, I, I think there were two problems in Paris. Um, uh, one was internal and the other, uh, as you suggest, was external. Uh, the internal one was disillusionment, uh, deepening disillusionment with the, um, the empire, um, Louis Napoleon's empire. Uh, he had this system of um, what we might, I suppose, euphemistically call manipulative democracy. Um, whereby people did vote, um, but they were um, um, encouraged to vote in a particular way by local officials, mayors, etc., in local communities. And this had gone on, of course, since the Second Empire had been um, created. But by the late 1860s, um, in the aftermath of the great Paris exhibition, which had been an immense success, after all, both Bismarck and King William of Prussia uh, went to Paris for that, um, people became increasingly disillusioned uh, with the way um, the state was administered by the lack of direct participation um, that many legislators had in the development of policy and the application of policy. And there was a perceived sense that Louis Napoleon himself, who was after all committed to a form of personal rule of France, uh, was himself a fading figure, I mean physically fading figure. He was increasingly uh, ill, uh, unwell, uh, and seemed far less capable of uh, running the state uh, than he had. And the battle ensued in, as an effort to change the nature of the state. And he was inclined, that is, Napoleon, to compromise with the liberal critics and allow more liberal involvement in shaping of policy and application of policy, which disillusioned the uh, hard right wing. Um, of his supporters who still
0: believed in personal rule, So you have that crisis, and then you have the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War. So not only does Lord Lyons find himself at you know in, in, in a national capital during this incredibly destructive war in North America, he now finds himself in a national capital during this uh, brief but decisive war in Europe. How does he uh, w- how does he manage British policy during this period and how does he deal with the drama of uh, of of Paris coming under attack, Paris coming under siege and the events that followed?
1: Well, his problem uh, is the fact that it's very difficult for him to get any clear policy out of the foreign office in London. Um, the British uh, are in difficulties. Uh For a variety of reasons. Um, The fact that they'd spoken so loudly um, out of the mouth of Palmerston and others during the crisis between Prussia and Denmark over Schleswig and Holstein in 1863 and 64, uh, even though the Prince of Wales had married the Danish uh, princess and there was large support for Uh, the marriage and for supporting the Danes in the struggle against the Prussians, the British could do very little and did very little. They talked a great deal. Their bark was far worse than their bite, which led to difficulties. Uh, Over uh, Schleswig-Holstein, 1863-64, when the Prussians moved in And acquired uh, both uh, of those provinces, which uh, the Danes had been trying to integrate more closely into the Danish state. uh, And the Prussians at that time had the support of of the Austrians. Uh, In addition to that, which was distrust of British policy, uh, there was an increasing inclination of British policymakers to um, parade non-intervention as... uh, a fundamental principle of British policy. Uh, the British were also hamstrung by Ireland. The Fenian movement in Ireland made it unstable, and they were worried about that. They were worried about um, the US. Um, the Americans were now presenting huge bills uh, for the costs of the Civil War, which they laid at the door of, um, of uh, British blockade runners and others. Um, There was also chaos within the um, foreign office itself. I think I mentioned that in the book, uh, that um, the undersecretaries and the secretaries were all fighting each other uh, over policy and over promotion and seniority. And this led to, one would have to say, a certain degree of confusion in British policy. Lyons had to deal with that. Uh, Of course, it was easier for him to contact the foreign secretaries, Um, of this period, but it was difficult for him. Um, And what he became progressively interested in was trying to ensure that the peace that the Prussians imposed upon France was uh, not so disastrous that it would lead to instability for decades in Europe and a strong desire Of the French to gain revenge. Uh, In particular, of course, he did not want to see Alsace and Lorraine uh, detached from France and added to Germany. He was. uh, I have to say Gladstone agreed with him but was not prepared to do very much about it. Um, uh, You know, he thought that uh, it was sort of unconscionable for the Prussians to absorb both of these provinces without some kind of referendum in them uh, to say that they wanted to become part of the Prussian Empire. And, of course, the culmination was the Prussians' decision to proclaim uh, the uh, Second Reich uh, in the Hall of um, Mirrors, Versailles, uh, and uh, have uh, King William pronounce the Kaiser uh, in that French uh, palace. Uh, in other words, uh, the humiliation became excessive and Lyons' hope that this could be diminished in some way, that Bismarck could be persuaded to be more reasonable than he seemed inclined to be, um, uh, failed. He just couldn't bring it up.
0: Lyons was also uh, center stage, or I shouldn't say center stage, but he was basically had a front row seat to the formation of the Third Republic. What did he, uh, did he, how did he respond to the development of, of a new French governing system? And, and, and in what way did he represent British interests there?
1: Once the Third Republic uh, got going, uh, of course, British interests were more or less restricted to uh, commercial interests. Um, um, there was the, uh, uh, the Cobden Treaty, the Free Trade Treaty. Uh, which became anathema for many um, politicians uh, in the Third Republic. Uh, in terms of the formation of the Third Republic, I have to say Lyons was impressed with Thiers, uh, who'd organized the provisional government. Um, and then, of course, with um, Bismarck's encouragement, um, helped to uh, uh, pummel the commune in Paris uh, in order to regain control of the national capital. Uh, he was impressed with Thiers as a, as a conservative statesman. Uh, but the problem in terms of organizing uh, France after the Franco-Prussian War was what kind of state would be formed. You had two sets of uh, monarchists. You had the, the legitimists, uh, led uh, largely by the Comte de Chambord, who was something of an oaf And uh, you had the Orleanists, um, the other branch um, of the monarchists. And you also had the imperialists. That is, there were those seeking to regain uh, some form of imperial regime following the uh, the, uh, removal of Louis Napoleon. His son, the Prince Imperial, was still available as a figurehead. And then beyond that, you had the republicans, and uh, Lyons was amused that um, Thiers, who hadn't been a great monarchist during uh, Louis Philippe's um, regime, became a great Republican. He wanted desperately to become president of the republic. And what Lyons hoped was that the um, republic that emerged from this confusion, because all of the imperialism monarchists were squabbling amongst themselves, um, that it would be something like a constitutional monarchy, uh, that the president of the French Republic would in fact be uh, like a monarch in Britain, but of course of limited term.
0: You describe how he aspired, uh, Lyons aspired to uh, a comfortable retirement, and yet he stays on as the ambassador in France for 20 years, why does he continue to nearly the very end of his life?
1: Well, one reason is that, um, I mean, he believed that probably he was best able to handle uh, the situation in France, which, I mean, is endemically um, unstable, despite the Republic. Um, And you have Boulanger uh, appearing a little bit later as a strong man who will somehow Uh, save the Third Republic from itself. Um, He was also under pressure from the Foreign Office and from the Prime Minister to stay on because he knew more than anybody else. He developed the contacts uh, with French ministers. uh, Descartes, for example, he was very friendly with him who served a considerable period as the French Foreign Secretary, uh, Foreign Minister. Um, He knew more people. He knew how to handle more people. So it was unwise to replace him. And it is significant that during this period, as I mentioned in the book, uh, three times um, he was effectively prom- uh, promoted by, outside- well, by the Queen and then by uh, conservative politicians to become foreign secretary. And Salisbury did offer him the job of foreign secretary towards the end of his period in France, but Lyons refused to take it. He had no interest in politics. And one of his great claims was that he was one man who desperately attempted to separate uh, partisan politics from diplomacy.
0: Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? <laughs>
1: um, currently I've just finished, um, uh, two manuscripts. Um, I became interested in, uh, crime for some reason. I don't know after diplomacy. Um, And uh, one deals with an American case, um, Emma Cunningham, who was accused of the murder of uh, of Harvey Burdell in uh, Manhattan in um, January, late January of 1857. And the other one is of a British uh, case, at much the same time. And the interesting thing about them was they were widely reported uh, in the other country. And that is um, a more infamous case of uh, Madeline Smith, uh, who allegedly poisoned her unwanted lover um, in uh, March of 1857. And I've just completed those two. I've been working on them for five years, but
0: have um, just completed the two manuscripts. So you're describing two separate manuscripts and not a manuscript that compares both cases.
1: Well, actually, I did try that, Mark, I have to say. I I tried to weld them together because they're so close in time. They're so uh, widely reported in the other country. I mean, the Madeline Smith case was reported by the Polynesian, which was the American expatriate's newspaper in the Hawaiian Islands in uh, 1857. Such was the interest in these two. But um, it became something of an encumbrance. It became very long and uh, very long manuscripts, uh, not the chosen vehicles uh, for publishers these days.
0: Well, I hope both those manuscripts uh, find their way to a press very soon. Brian, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Okay. Thank you very much, Mark. Bye-bye.